people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam, and as ever, I am joined by Alex. And we're talking about the book that we just written. It's pretty exciting. Uh, it's called Post Internet Far Right. And it's going to be out pretty soon on Dog Section Press sometime. Mm, possibly not by the time you're hearing this, but if it's like sometime around uh, early 2021, possibly you will be able to get the book. If you can't get the book, sorry, it'll be on issue, I think. Uh, not quite sure how to say that, but it'll be on issue. And you'll also be able to get a physical copy from Dog Section Press themselves. Um, highly recommended, um, you know. <laughs> don't want to blow her own trumpet here but uh it's pretty tight it's pretty pretty good i think definitely not loose yeah, I, it's not loose i think that's one of its main qualities is that it is extremely tautly written uh, it's only forty thousand words you can probably read it in a weekend um and it's very much an attempt to summarize and kind of compress all our thinking we've done um in the podcast so far and to in some ways like amalgamate all of that into a, a single framework and the framework has quite a few different parts. It has a kind of a it's segmented into really quite kind of short chapters. And the idea is not that it's some sort of final grand theory. The idea is that it's supposed to be an initial prompt or an initial opening gambit, I guess, in a kind of um, an ongoing conversation with like other anti-fascists or with other people who are studying the far right. And yeah, in some ways, it's, it's, it's an attempt to kind of compress a lot of research into a short time period or a kind of a short word limit and in doing so um, clarify it but also find out what's kind of fundamental in the um, yeah in, in the kind of voluminous research that has been done on the far right in the last say five years its scope is basically between 2009 in the UK and the present day and 2010 all the, all the way up to 2020 in the US as well, but mostly focused on the latter half of that decade. So that's the rise of the alt-right and its subsequent decline and the kind of transformation of the militia movement as well. However, we should say that the book doesn't particularly frequently address Trump, which is a deliberate choice. What we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the far-right movements that are possibly given kind of shelter by Trump or given certainly more space than they were given in past US presidencies. But we don't um, address Trump directly except as a kind of a background condition. Um, so it's mostly about the, the transformations of the internet on far-right politics and the transformations of the kind of the, the contemporary day. That's kind of the summary of the book, I guess. Um, but it's also, fo it's also kind of interested in other parts of the Anglophone far-right, which, of course, because of the anglicizing tendencies of the internet, because now you know, even, say, Martin Selner, the you know, Austrian leader of Generation Identity, even he, in his new project, the Osterreicher, um, which is, of course, like an explicitly Austrian nationalist movement, gives you know, impeccable English interviews. And so um, the Anglophone far right is the real kind of subject of the book. But that includes Germans, French, um, other European countries as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like you said, it speaks to what we've been doing on the podcast. Um, it's trying to think some new things. Um Often we've had a criticism of anti-fascists that they're kind of stuck in a kind of uh, like a quite an outdated view of what the far right is or what fascism is and have not kind of factored in uh, how the internet has changed these movements and how we need to oppose them properly. Um, and I guess it, it's like you said, it's not meant to be a comprehensive be all and end all. It's meant to be um, what we think. Um, highlighting the areas in which we think like are important to think about as well. So it's not we're not trying to be comprehensive necessarily. In fact, the book is definitely not comprehensive and purposely so. It's selective, um, and we we feel like I mean the, so the book the book kind of builds up a kind of a ongoing kind of profile of kind of the far right on the internet. Um, and it starts from like very basic fundamentals of like feelings, you know, how, did it, how does it feel to be a member of the far right? How does it feel to be someone on the internet? Um, what are the kind of feelings that drive people into the far right and fascism? 
and and it kind of goes on from there. We go through metapolitics, kind of conspiracy theories, um, talk about more structural stuff like the presence, this presence of a kind of a reactionary swarm and a reactionary internet swarm that is like a new kind of almost institution on the far right. And it, indeed, in like white society too, like the swarm is not, you know, exclusive to the far right at all. And then we kind of, I suppose towards the end of the book, we kind of drill down into some more areas of concern. Um, so we have a chapter on deadly violence, um, which is, you know, we we kind of just went through a cycle of deadly violence with the, you know, the Christchurch attack, Pittsburgh synagogue attack, uh, the Powers attack. Um, thinking through how these things happened, the Apasa shooting, what, like, not why they happened, but kind of, you know, what was the structure of them? What was written in the manifestos, things like that. And then we also talk about these new organisational forms, kind of identitarian networks and groups, and also other kind of far-right organisational innovations, um, which are kind of been made possible through the internet. And finally, we have a chapter on eco-fascism, which we don't spend as much time on as we will do later in our next book, um, which is going to be all about eco-fascism. And the kind of new organisational forms, deadly violence and eco-fascism is the kind of, I suppose, a trifecta of what we think, like areas of concern for us at least. Um, they're kind of areas where anti-fascists have different answers. Um, so deadly, for the, the kind of the... I suppose, um, singular attacks or singular shooters, we have, artifacts have no real answer to the Christchurch shooting, for example. Um, and we need an answer because we shouldn't be ceding, uh, ceding that area of the far right or that group or that milieu of the far right to the state at all. Like, we need to start thinking about how to defend our communities, defend and disrupt these, these attacks. Um, New organizational forms have got more answers, but we often treat them in like uh, in quite an outdated fashion, I think. Um, and then eco-fascism uh, is a much wider kind of issue linked to the ongoing climate breakdown that we're, you know, all about to are living through and about to live through even more. Um, and we've got some stuff about uh, the pandemic in there. We've got some stuff about yeah, like I said, climate breakdown. Um, in many ways, you can, we would argue, you can see the pandemic as a microcosm of like a, a, a much more cataclysmic climate breakdown. Coronavirus is, of course, an environmental uh, catastrophe in many ways, exacerbated by uh, human behaviour, human societies, and the human policies and governments. And the same is true for climate change. Um, these are... The reason why the pandemic is, you know, taking a hold and why climate change is going to take a hold like, they, like you know, so seriously is because uh, of for systemic reasons, systemic reasons, ultimately. And we need to have a kind of systemic response to those reasons. Um, and that kind of thinking through that response is only just beginning, to be honest. It's terrifying. <laughs> You're laughing, but you're actually crying, aren't you? Terrifying systems. Um, I'm crying inside. Yeah, I think I think terrifying systems would be a really good uh, subtitle <laughs> for the book. <laughs> Post-internet far right, terrifying systems. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, kind of uh, summary of where we end up in the book. We end up with these three points: the new organizational forms, which are these, as Alex was just saying, there these kind of. Forms that have managed to synthesize partially all the various other strands that we talk about in the book. So the, let's just go through those again. First one is feelings. So as Alex said, we, we situate people in the kind of historical conditions of their feelings, right? Which are not these just kind of chemical processes happening in the body, but also these um, historical phenomena. And then we look at metapolitics, which is this supposed strategy of the far right to influence debate, influence uh, general patterns of thought. Uh, then we look at conspiracy which is a very particular kind of metapolitical activity in that it's the way of spreading mistrust or spreading a view of power that doesn't have a 
let's say um to use kind of a crudely marxist kind of term like um material basis right it's a it's a form of it's a form of explanation for the world that is in some ways like just misses the point of um how power actually operates and then our, our next chapter is about the tension between the swarm and influencers so the influencers are people who everyone's kind of heard of people like tommy robinson people like um say martin selner who we mentioned earlier and they're these kind of figureheads they're the kind of people who are able to not really command the swarm or not really command these large street movements but instead command attention within them and that command of attention becomes a kind of de facto or a kind of replacement for command in its more traditional hierarchical sense and so that's the next chapter where we talk about the tension between the influencer and the swarm so how does the swarm radicalize the influencer how does the swarm push for greater and greater and greater kind of articulacy from the into the or greater and greater radicalism from the influencer how does the the swarm um you know withdraw or give its support to these people and then the next chapter is on intellectuals the next chapter is about the attempts kind of a level above in terms of discourse from these influencers who are not necessarily giving particular prescriptions for what people should be doing who are not necessarily telling them you know exactly what to think they're just kind of playing on and manipulating a certain kind of feeling that the swarm generates and the intellectuals are doing something much more clearly articulating right they're trying to describe a political worldview they're trying to like organize a um a way of thinking about the world and ultimately what we argue they're doing is they're trying to construct the movement as an elite they're trying to make the movement seem like it is separate from and superior to society in um several different ways and it happens at different different ways at diff different points on the far right moving from you know discussions of race and iq uh that kind of pseudoscience to you know much more mystical kind of mythico aesthetic um parts of uh the intellectual life of the far right and the next chapter is also about the street so that's kind of the opposite of the intellectuals right that's where physical power and physical space become absolutely central to the development of movements and then the next thing that happens is after that we get these new organizational forms so the idea is that that new organizational form in some ways encapsulates all the previous parts it gives you a way of feeling your feelings it gives you a way of articulating a kind of metapolitical influence in the world it gives you a way of organizing and understanding the world that is basically conspiratorial it resolves in some sense the tension between the swarm and the influencer by making the influencers um part of a hierarchical party-like structure not necessarily parties but party-like and it kind of subsumes the swarm into those as well it gives you an intellectual justification for the world and also it gives these um people often young men something to kind of physically do not necessarily in forms of street actions although it does happen as well but in forms of stunts or of small-scale actions that are designed to be seen online so that's the first kind of moment of synthesis you get these new organizational forms and you, you know there are a bunch of those in the book which we go through i mean i think okay yeah i think it's important to say i think it's important to say that these new organizational forms are not yet fully realized um we kind of use generation identity and some other groups as kind of models for what we want to talk about but these are, of course, still kind of imperfect in many ways and not yet fully kind of incorporating all the aspects of what we're talking about. But we say the kind of these kind of groups are the kind of the best hope for a, a new form of organisation to come out and one that can incorporate all these things. Yeah, totally. I think that there's there are still lots of um, rough edges and that's really important from an anti-fascist perspective, right? That's really important that there's not this perfectly functioning machine synthetically amalgamating everything in the far right right there is still cracks and those cracks are handles that anti-fascists can grab onto and attempt to kind of pull these organizations apart as they're forming so i think that anti-fascists need to be really attentive to the ways in which all these different aspects of far right politics so that's you know metapolitics a certain kind of operationalization of feelings a certain kind of like swarm dynamic a certain kind of way of appearing in the in the media or online a certain kind of way of like intellectualizing or constructing an elite, a certain kind of way of appearing on the street, of demanding something with force, how these kind of things are actually not just kind of moments of a single project, but actually massively in tension with each other and how they can be pulled apart and how they can be um, disassembled, which is what the conclusion of the book really, really kind of attempts to argue 
the optimal way of anti-fascist doing strategy is to um, to do research and so on. I mean, not just research, obviously. There's much more that goes into it behind that, which we're probably not going to be talking about on the podcast. But um, certainly uh, one of the key areas is this kind of like research in, in, in terms of the um, finding things that we can kind of pride open, like a kind of rickety uh, piece of furniture. Yeah, should we talk about that for a little bit? What I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. What do you think is good anti-fascist research? What do you think marks out good anti-fascist research compared to bad anti-fascist research? Well, I would say that the the, the standard of good anti-fascist research is is really set by this new book that's coming out. It's called Post-Internet Far Right by 12 Rules for What. It's on Dog Section Press. It'll be some, out sometime early 2021. Bruh. If you don't issue. Bruh. Or you can Bruh. get it directly as a physical copy Bruh. from Dog Section Press. You can also get it as an audio book, which you're going to record, aren't you? Yes, with my mellifluous tones uh, beams directly into your ear. There's also going to be an ASMR version. There isn't. That um, freaks me out. There isn't going to be an ASMR version. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, I don't know, anti-fascist research, I think, is mostly... There are, different, there are different kind of techniques that are used, right? And for my money, and this is going to be kind of controversial, for my money, anti-fascist research is in some sense often excessively empirical. What do you mean by that? Right, if you think about... Okay, so if you think about um, your average Hope Not Hate report, and, you know, people give Hope Not Hate a lot of flack, and they actually do really good work. What? Um, or at least they, they, prov- they provide the resources on which people could do really good work i think their their ability to track all the different kind of like little minute personal fallings out between different parts of the far right is actually quite like an important part of research and it's also really impressive just from a kind of a data gathering point of view but what you never get in hope not hate reports which is really a real real shame because you know not they're not stupid right (laughs) they're really they're bright people what, what you never really seem to get in Hope Not Hate reports is a sense of a particular kind of historical situation or a particular kind of media situation, right? There's a kind of a way of appearing in the world that is dominated by or transformed by or organized by certain technological systems that we kind of live in and through. And that really depends, or that kind of you know, manipulates or transforms what how people are capable of appearing. And so there's kind of a lack of like a, a sense of the, the history of politics more generally. It treats the far right as in some ways excessively particular and excessively detached from the rest of society, which I don't think it really is. You know, we talked about far right influences in the book. The point of using that term, the point of using the term influences, is that it's an extremely generic term that is applied to almost, you know, like loads of people online. There are loads of influences. And the way they operationalize and the way they kind of utilize attention in order to command groups of people in a kind of a, not a direct command way, but the, way, the metaphor we use in the book is, is that the command is statistical, right? The command is, um, there are some people who are very, very close who will do exactly what you say. And indeed, some people in what we describe as scripted violence in the book, which is not our term, but it's a term we've borrowed, scripted violence who will read into the you know, statements of far-right influencers more than the far-right influencers have explicitly put there. And they will use that to commit acts of violence. So the, the violence is, like the term suggests, it's scripted. It's a way of like, discussing a kind of a situation that propels people to violence. That's people at the very, 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 very end of a distribution who are most attuned, over-attuned perhaps, to what the far-right influencers are saying. But most people are actually like in this kind of huge middle part, right? Where they're they're kind of paying attention and they kind of agree with the influencer, but there's there's no direct hierarchical command. And there are lots of people at the very, you know, kind of the other end, the other extreme who know who Tony Robertson is, right? That's one of the best name recognitions in the UK, or at least did a few years ago. But who don't pay attention to what he what he thinks. And so they, this transformation in command, this transformation in organization on the far right always seems to be missing explicitly from that kind of empirical anti-fascism, which is overly concerned, I think, with detailing exactly what the tiny relationships are between different people on the far right, which is 
useful, right? It's it's useful to know that Tori Robertson doesn't get along with like you know someone else. That's really useful to know, but it's not the full picture, and it's in some ways quite an individualistic picture, and it's quite a kind of a particularizing picture that means that it's very difficult to understand the far right not just as this aberration but as the extreme end of a form of life that we all now live under i mean i think uh that's but yeah i mean i i i get your underlying point i i think if we i think we probably at some point need to do an episode about home not here more fully because my criticisms are long and varied and um, they have a credibly, they have quite a strange history, um, but we'll get to that another time. I think, just but at least on them, I think the, there's a kind of anti-fascism that kind of sees the the way of, of of stopping the far right or you know far right extremism is by you know kind of ramping up state resources into uh, kind of prevent and channel things like that. Um, which obviously we would both have big problems with. Um, we think, I mean, I think there's a few things about research in particular that I think is really important. It should be uh, responsive to and appropriate for a movement rather than being put out into the ether. Like, it should be useful to anti-fascists who are doing anti-fascist work. Yeah, I think I think one of the things we touch on in the book, sorry, just a really brief point. One of the things we touch on in the book is that there's like lots of the things that we're talking about when we're talking about a kind of continuity between the right, the, the term we use is contiguity, by which mean like things that are bordering, right? Like it's possible to get from one part of the far right to the other part of the far right. And we're thinking about the kind of the ways in which information flows from influencers to street movements and from street movements to deadly violence and from, you know, deadly violence affects, um, you know, these new organizational forms we're talking about. Like as you think about these kind of informational flows, you can also in some sense see what might be useful for movements that oppose the far right, like the informational flows that would be required for a anti-fascist movement, as you know, Alex was saying. And that's not what Hope Not Hate is doing. I also think there's a, there's a tendency to overly focus on facts. And I don't mean that we should be lying. <laughs> I mean that um, there's often like, especially on kind of like, I suppose the Twitter research end of things, like the Twitter accounts do kind of post screenshots of Facebook profiles and things like that, that um, people just have to be presented with a whole bunch of information, little segmented bits of information, one after the other, this person's a Nazi, this person's a far right, this person's a Tommy Robinson fan, here's their profile pic, here's their Facebook profile, there you go. Yeah, that's what I mean by excessively empirical, yeah. This is, um, this is like a really uh, quite a bad way of doing research because uh, first of all, you need to be you need to know which audience you're talking to. Like, if I was going to produce a piece of research for people who are already anti-fascist, I would I would pitch it in a different way than if I was producing a piece of research for the general public or for a more kind of general, like kind of left audience or you know just you know a general audience. Um, this kind of there's also an issue of filtering as well. Like, filtering is really important. Like. You need someone to be able to say, this person is important and you, we should focus our attention on this person. And these people are not so important. And they, they paint part of the picture, but here's the important person we need, or here's the important group that we need to be thinking about. And we, we've seen this in the Home Not Here as well with this kind of sudden obsession with the order of the nine angles, uh, which we talk about in the book. Um, but it's kind of given like a very like... Uh, like the the argument was for them to be kind of prescribed like national action. Of course, these, this group was never on the level of national action. Uh, well, it's it's know. not really a group. <laughs> it's a collection of kind of self radicalization texts that are used by kind of Satanists to. I mean, it's not. It's not. Anyway, does that, that, yeah. I mean, you can prescribe a meme, but that's weird. Like, don't do that. Like, you yeah, don't prescribe memes, guys. Yeah, memes should be free. Free the memes. Um, and I, I guess just finally on the on the on the research point, um, just but go, going back to like being responsive to movements and what that means, like research shouldn't be something that's like completely separate from activism or activity or like opposition. Like it should inform and be informed by by kind of ongoing effort. Um, and oftentimes we have these researchers who think. Um, the, the the best way to like kind of 
that the, the wider public like has a general antipathy to Nazis, and which they do, but and then that is enough um, to like name someone's a Nazi is enough of, of like a, a step to take to like kind of make them social pariahs or make them like kind of shunned, and that's not how it, that's that's not enough. Like we need to be we need to use our research to inform. Artifacts need to use research to inform what they do, and to be effective in what they do. And there's a there's a real difference, I think, in amongst some researchers and some other researchers. Um, well, we, we talk, okay. So we talked about new organizational forms. So shall we talk about uh, deadly violence? Yeah. So one of the, the other so new organizational forms are these, as we've said, kind of um, ramshackle syntheses of all the different parts of the far right that we've talked about so far in the book. I'm going to list them again because I love listing things. Uh, that's been a real point of tension between us in the <laughs> writing process. Some great lists in this book, guys. The That is feelings, metapolitics, conspiracy, Sorman influences, intellectuals, the street. That all goes into new organizational forms. It's kind of synthesis. But then it falls into tension with, and it is still in tension with, this other totally different strain of the far right, which we've called the black pill. Now, black pill is, of course, an extension of the red pill, blue pill logic. Red pill is basically seeing through the world, right? It's the pill you take in the matrix, and you can see through the world, and you understand, ah, you entered the far right, you know, race is uh, actually the most important thing in the world, and you know, the Jews control the media, all those kind of things. Those are the far right opinions that you get once you've taken, quote-unquote, the red pill. The black pill is a kind of extension of this. The black pill is a pill that lets you see the world for how the far I think it is. That is, you know, conspiratorial, controlled, etc. But it also lets you, um, it, it, it removes from you any possibility of political solution to that problem. And so it's not a, a way of articulating a politics so much as a way of articulating a kind of despair at the lack of politics, the lack of possibility for politics. And so instead, what is turned to, instead of a coherent attempt to, you know, manipulate um, the media or do something like that, or build a political party or build a political movement, instead what it's turned to is like acts of extreme and sudden violence. So that's the, um, that's in some ways like the, the kind of culmination of, of what we call the black pill politics. It's a politics that focuses, fixates on violence. And it's true that the Order of the Nine Angles is part of that, but it's not a particularly kind of major part of that. In some ways, it's kind of a meme. But this is a, a strain on the far right that sits obviously really uncomfortably with these movement-building organizations in the same way as you know, any kind of... Um, you know, uh, organization that is trying to do respectable mainstream politics would be uncomfortable with some of its adherents going out and shooting people. Now, what's kind of changed is that because, as I said before, the command over movements is in some ways not really hierarchical or not really binary. You're not under someone's command or not. But now, instead, command is sort of statistical. The ways in which that deadly violence is also affects the far right the organized far right, the way in which it affects them is also changed. So you have what's called stochastic terrorism. We did an episode about stochastic terrorism, or at least we kind of touched on it a few times in past episodes. The idea is that what happens is that the far right online, mostly online, but in other places as well, build up such a kind of frenetic energy that some people kind of pop out the top, right? They... Um, take things uh, further than the swarm is willing to each individually go and they kill people and this is the idea behind how say the christchurch shooter who killed 51 muslims in new zealand how he got radicalized he wasn't tied to a particular group although more on that later but he was just kind of in this milieu which produced the radicalization process so it's there's not a direct connection with other groups on the far right but nevertheless, in the aftermath of the shooting, in the aftermath of this mass murder, it was discovered that he had contributed financially to Generation Entity. He might have even gone to Europe to meet with Generation Entity. 
this is really important, right? This is really damaging for generation identity. And so these new organizational forms are very much in tension with the deadly violence. And it's almost a pessimistic conclusion of the book, which is uh, in the next chapter on ecofascism, is about the question of whether or not there will be in the future still this tension, or whether or not the climate crisis, by being so overwhelmingly huge as a problem, might seem in some sense to be legitimate justification for killing and whether or not therefore we might have a return to deadly violence as a part and parcel of a new organizational form on the far right so that's really the kind of the, the pessimistic question that we ask towards the end of the book about the far right the, i mean the idea that these kind of movement like a movement could incorporate these acts of deadly violence or these people who do acts of deadly violence and for that, that violence to like kind of benefit them and lift them up in some way is really terrifying and, and something we kind of contend with in the book. Um, the other thing when we're talking about these kind of attacks, of course, is the role of the state, which you just can't get around. Um, national action, uh, if we, for, so if we take the example of national action, who, who's like kind of peripheral members did commit acts of deadly violence. Um, there was the, the man in a supermarket in Wales who uh, killed a, a Sikh man um, uh, uh, because he, he, he thought he was a Muslim. Or oh, there's, um, you know, the, the other kind of plans were made as well. Um, especially by one of the kind of leaders of the group, Jack Renshaw, who has later convicted of various plans to kill a Labour MP and for grooming an underage boy or two underage boys. Um, National actually kind of um, stopped existing for a number of reasons. There was a, some very effective opposition by anti-fascists, particularly in Liverpool, but also Newcastle, um, which kind of drove them from these kind of big, spectacular, uh, at least aiming to be spectacular public street demonstrations into more um, kind of flash mob kind of stuff. Um, and like unannounced actions, and but the the biggest factor for the kind of dissolution of national action ultimately was their prescription by the Home Secretary at the time. It was their prescription and subsequent prosecutions being member of members of national action, kind of the police investigations that spark were sparked by the um, the kind of uh, information provided by Robbie Mullen, who uh, then wrote a book with. Um, wrote a book about his experiences with Hub Not Hate. Um, that was the ultimate end to national action, really, in its kind of open public form. And the subsequent groups that followed, some of them been ensnared in this prescription order, some of them haven't. And when you're talking about these kinds of like very destabilising actions that really challenge the legitimacy, um, well, not legitimacy, they, they challenge the kind of like uh, implicit safety that the state kind of provides um, to all of us. Um, whether it actually does that or not is another thing, but like, you know, the order that it kind of enforces. Um, if someone is able to, you know, ram their car into a, a group of worshippers or stab someone in a supermarket or shoot a bunch of worshippers in a mosque, then that kind of uh, power is threatened in some way. And so obviously the state has an interest much more than in kind of usual far-right extremism. Okay, so this bit, um, we're going to read a section of the book. It's going to be done by Sam, who's um, got a better voice for it than I do, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> oh, you're too kind. <laughs> um, it's just from the kind of, I guess, the, center, the, the middle chapter. Uh, it's in the middle of the book anyway. Yeah, this is, the, this, is, this is just chapter four. This is called The Swarm and Influencer. So in some ways, it's kind of the pivotal chapter of the book. Um, it's the point at which we try and articulate how groups and individuals operate in the far right. So I'm going to read the section um, called Fire Influences. That's the second part of the uh, the chapter. And it really is trying to articulate the various kinds of tensions between the swarm on the one hand, which is this kind of nebulous um, frenetic activity of uh, people. I'm going to read you, first of all, a very brief section of a list that we wrote of kind of people who are included in this figure of the swarm. So and, and to be clear, it is meant to sound overwhelming and you are meant to not know what some of these things are. Sure. So boomer QAnon conspirators, savvy identitarian marketeers, black-pilled fash wave siege posters, laddish Tommy Robertson acolytes, same posting bot farmers, 
image board raiders, content cucks, forced memers, ethno-nationalist livestream chatters, ironically sincere trolls, serial self-indebting super chat donors, furtive lurkers, Islamophobic football ultras, racist daily mail commentators, paid Russiagate trolls, Wojak meme auctioneers, cottagecore tradwife histogrammers, suspiciously enthusiastic probable cops, shitposters of all kinds, last resort neo-Nazi web admins, spiteful MRA forum posters, the hacker known as 4chan, fascist self-help gurus, anti-far instigators, Wotan's Volk Christian blamers, plausibly deniable media outlets, and so on and so on and so on. So there's, this is the swarm, this is the kind of the heterogeneous mass, and they come into tension with the far influencers. So the book goes, The swarm is the roiling maelstrom from which far politics now emerges. It has usually been understood as headless, an effect of the network model undermining the more centralised organisations. Even in the decentralised or sometimes distributed network of the swarm, certain modes remain, however, indispensable. Some of these nodes are invisible. Their importance is infrastructural. They command and direct the network. But for most of the significant nodes, it is not command they centralise, but command substrate, attention. This is how an ostensibly decentralised form, like the swarm, came to push celebrities to the fourth far right even more than before. In this chapter, it is these nodes we are concerned with. Those nodes whose appearance as figures distinct from the swarm is an aspect of their power. Figurehead, spokesperson, cheerleader, take generator, shibboleth definer, hate focuser, swarm noise compressor, alliance maker, radicalization funneler, vicarious emotion feeler, network densifier, debate participant, fundraiser, personal advisor, performative criticism taker, perfect victim, mythic lib owner. The influencer has many roles, but their power is always related to their ability to appear. We term these people foreign influencers. This appearance is inherently full of tensions. Too distinct, and they become detached from the group which gives them power. Too indistinct, and they lose traction, dissolving back into the swarm. Their relationship with the swarm is therefore ultimately transactional, and their status relies on their ability to give it continual stimulation and articulation. They are the keynotes of what Steve Bannon has called a politics of mobilisation. Less and less concerned with the organisation of a coherent group with a stable agenda, and more and more concerned with the incitement to feeling, and then to action. Far-right influencers are the main dealers in a culture of dosing on outrage. However, the declining intensity of feeling with each successive dose means that greater and greater forms of outrage need to be sought. It is this need for intensification which sets in motion a pattern of radicalization between the swarm and influencer. Novelty plays a huge part in the question of how outraged someone can feel. Nevertheless, only a very small number of topics really hit the mark. The influencer provides for the swarm a degree of articulation of their politics. They make explicit what their members believe but are unable to say for themselves. Influencers are always involved, therefore, in a tense relationship with ideology. Too clear, or too general of a one, and the influences become unimportant, as we argue took place in the recent 2020 statue defender protests in the UK. When the politics consists almost entirely in angrily defending the statue of Winston Churchill, influences lose one of their main functions. Churchill is our guy. Everyone knows it. Influences are no longer needed to articulate the underlying politics. In terms of explicit political ideas, a degree of individual particularity is thus essential for each influencer. But in terms of the emotional motor of far-right politics, far-right leadership today follows rather than leads. It does, through, it does so through affective acuity, sensing and orienting the mood of the swarm, developing an instinct for its movements, learning its underlying transformations of emotion and confidently embodying its desires. Fascist leaders in the past have been seen as the summation of a movement's intentions. Hitler is understood by many of the far right now to have been a simple man whose life was subsumed entirely into the movement. Fascist leadership has been, in some substantial sense, 
a question of who can submit themselves to the logic of the group most fully. This has not changed. Influencers still express their movement's conventional politics. But, however, it's not perhaps for the same reason. The economy of takes online, where influencers compete to say something unique, or just uniquely extreme, runs up against the swarm's deep conventionalism. Stray even little too far from their narrow beliefs, and it turns off. Between these two demands, the demands that you say something unique, and the demand that you stay with what everyone already thinks, lies the thin path of the successful influencer. But its conventionalism is not opposed to extremism. The Storm's conventionalism is at times the conventionalism of extremism, the progressive narrowing of focus. There is, after all, always seemingly a new way to blame the Jews. What's being called the extremist dilemma between greater openness and greater security is here transformed from a dilemma inside a single group, as it was for, say, the National Front, into a tension between two groups, the swarm and the influencers. Indeed, one of the main tensions between the swarm and the influencer lies in the former's thirst for more and more radical statements, and the latter's resistance to them. Because they must be seen to be really present, and therefore authentic to maintain their power, influencers have vastly more skin in the game than their swarm followers. This is the case even when that performance of authenticity diverges from their legal personhood, as below. Radicalisation thus has very different stakes for the individuals who appear on the screen, whose individuality is particular, and whose presentation has a necessary consistency, and for the anonymous swarm who rarely need to appear for themselves. The swarm wants the influencer to say things that are the, at the edge of the acceptable set of their opinions. To keep engagement, rightward drift is thus essential. Being edgy, relative to yourself, is as much a necessity as being consistent with yourself. However, radicalization in public is a hugely more risky process for influencers. It is in tension not only with the demand that they maintain a consistently engaging line, but also with the mainstream platforms themselves, for whom radicalization beyond a certain point is verboten. To become an influencer thus requires the ability to produce content that is acceptable to three distinct audiences. The platform itself, represented by moderators, both algorithmic and human, the swarm, and potential recruits. Deplatforming happens when the focus strays towards the latter, which can be catastrophic, as was the case for Tommy Robinson, who was summarily removed from major platforms after his bigotry, bullying, and calls to violence could no longer be ignored. However, to milk toast, and everyone else loses interest. Influencers can, however, present themselves as faking it, in one very specific way. They can winkingly disguise their own radicalism. Indeed, this very obvious disguising of extreme beliefs, for example, disguising one's own anti-Semitism, can seem to the audience like a shared secret, a mark of personal friendship. YouTube, in particular, is a site of individuals whose rich particularity is the main draw to their ideas much as in the wider ecology of streaming content. These individuals provide not only information, but a parasocial function. Influences can seem by the capacity to appear continuously across networks and display different parts of themselves across different platforms, like your friends. They must demonstrate their personalities, that mode of self-presentation which is not algorithmically reducible. They cultivate cults of personal loyalty. Being unique is also necessarily one of the most effective ways of densifying the network. Public live stream debates, known as internet blood sports, are common. In these online debates between two or more influencers, the swarm pitches in in the comment section, rooting for their guy. 
These blood supports simultaneously fulfill a bunch of functions. They connect disparate groups of the swarm through the meeting of multiple audiences. They produce hugely extended video content. And they provide a sense of vibrant, diverse intellectual culture. We cannot discount the visceral thrill common across the internet of seeing someone you do not like getting owned. Cringe is an emotional thrill. In moments of decline, motivating and sustaining activity, presenting things as more hopeful than they actually are, are important skills as well. In the Telegram chats of the far right, stopping the tendency towards blackpilling, posting depressing, pessimistic content, which makes its audience believe there's nothing to do but commit sporadic violence, takes on an existential importance. On the live streams and videos around which the swarm congregates, there are constant exhortations to white pill instead of black pill, to raise racial consciousness and to do something rather than falling further and further into inactivity and hopelessness. So that was from the Swarm and Influencer section. I'm also going to read a section from the Feelings chapter of the book, which is the first chapter. It's kind of contentious, I guess, to start with thinking about feelings of people on the far right or thinking about whether or not their feelings actually, I guess, in any way matter. Um, we give a brief justification, but I'm going to skip the justification and go on with the first little section of that. So how are fascists made? Capitalism produces people. You, me, everyone you know. It works on and through all of us, moulding us into the people we become, just as we mould it. Capitalism today does not produce people like it did in the 1920s. Its requirements and possibilities have changed. The capitalist subject of neoliberalism could be categorised as the achievement subject, a self-exploiting kind of personhood, subsumed in an endless flow of reproductions of images, tending nowhere in particular, but always alert to the possibility of increasing its personal value. Those who do not make themselves into productive components of the general accumulation simply have not tried hard enough. The possibility of failure is built in to the production of people. Failure is treated as aberrant, but in class society, it's structural. When something fails reliably, we can say that it has a failure mode. Fascism might be seen as a failure mode of capitalism. It's one of the many ways in which the underlying capitalist impulse to reproduce the conditions of accumulation might mutate and survive under crisis conditions. Similarly, we can think of a fascist as a particular failure mode of capitalist people production. But because the capitalism of the 21st century is not like that of the 1930s, so the fascism of the 21st century will not be the same. And likewise, the production of fascists, those who desire and build fascism, has also changed. Perhaps the most sympathetic possible account of some fascists now is that they desire an end to the inanity of human capital accumulation and pointless life under capital. As the organisation of life by capitalism ever deepens, fascism takes positions on more and more aspects of life that seem outside the realm of politics. However, its syncretism and totalising scope exists not because of the breadth of its imagination, but by virtue of its function as a systematization of the brutal techniques of discipline and social control. In this sense, fascism is capitalism's bleeding edge, but temporarily displaced. Its regressive and reactionary politics are tied to a scope of concern that becomes possible as capitalism moves forward into more and more of our lives. Fascists rightly reject the order of the present, but they do so spurred on by a false view of a lost, masculine, racially homogenous past. They desire not the end of this system of built-on misery and brutality, but the redistribution of suffering back towards racialized and gendered others. A radicalization of politics that ends up affirming the most brutal and conventional parts of capitalism's alienating logic. We will return again and again to this normy radicalism, this militarised articulation of the burning core of the present. Fascism feeds on crisis. After the First World War, the crisis seemed total, 
military, political, social and economic. But it was also a subjective crisis, a masculine crisis. In male fantasies, Klaus Terrellite begins with memoirs of the Freikorps. Here, intimacy with women is not merely shunned. Terrellite says there is more in play here than simple prudishness or questions of morality. We are dealing with the warding off of a threat. Terrellite suggests something that perhaps remains true. With far-right feelings, the warding off of a subjectively consuming sexual relationship is foundational. Now, masculine failure is more variegated. Although we have said that failure is structural, it is subject to historical variation as well. It produces diverse and complicated feelings. Hatred, a passionate need for fear. Hatred, a passionate need for and fear of intimacy. A disgust for what is uncontrollable or unfamiliar. A feeling that everything lacks potency. A feeling lacks force. A feeling that the world has been degraded. A suspicion that power is against you. A listlessness, a lack of clarity and a feeling of being outside the world. And a blind rage. Although this feeling can be specific, for example, the failure to protect our girls, which was so potent for the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, or DFLA, more often it is the broader failure to become subjectively meaningful at all. On 4chan, and other tributary cultural formations of the contemporary far right, feelings of subjective failure are ubiquitous. For most of early 4chan, neats, stereotypically dwelling in the basement of their parents' house, formed the self-conceived community. Compare, pathetically, these quotidian scenes to the foundational crisis of masculinity for the Freikorps, losing the First World War. For the far right today, even failure is degraded. The more lackadaisical the young man, and it is mostly, although not entirely men, becomes, the more he fails by social standards, the more he hunts for the singular pursuit, the singular strategy that will make him whole and vital. The route out of failure is also found in the quotidian. Fascist narratives of overcoming are not so structurally different from self-help literature, except that they can accommodate also the urge to kill and to die. They tie the young man into a mythic community and tell him that he is failing because of some other thing elsewhere, Something to be fixated on and hate. And to take his place in the mythic community, they tell him, he must be prepared to fight. Yeah, good, nice. You know, people talk about the internet's breaking down like the traditional media gatekeepers who filter everything and opening up to like a cacophony of um, opinion. Uh, anyone can start a YouTube channel, anyone can start an Instagram start saying whatever they want within the limits of the terms of service, which we also talk about um, in, in the conclusion. Um, and it, it creates this kind of, um, and this is not particular to the far right, this kind of entrepreneurial aspect to kind of politicking in many ways. Um, like you too can make it, you too can get 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, you too can get attention. Um, and obviously for every single influencer that, you know, is very successful and commands audiences, there are like 100,000 people who never make it in many ways are very obscure and you know post to like 40 people and that's it um and oftentimes these kind of entrepreneurial influence they they kind of create a web of of um kind of alliances appearing on each other's shows appearing on each other's podcasts dropping into streams uh, and so what kind of ends up happening is almost a there's a swarm and then there's the the swarm of the influencers who are kind of providing content. Um, and this is like very different to, to the kind of how far right has organised, which is kind of within groups then there should be a kind of strict hierarchical kind of structure, a kind of a, 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 a understanding of, of authority about who is telling who to do what. Um, and the, the this is kind of, in many ways, it, it kind of bring, gives groups, gives organisations vitality, gives them energy. There's this thing is going on all the time. There's always a new podcast, there's always a new video, there's always a new stream. 
there is always commentary. Um, you can throw yourself into that. Um, but it also kind of undermines the traditional structures of authority. Like, where do you place the kind of uh, podcast, the fascist podcast host who um, is, you know, doesn't do anything within the group or is notably lazy, but and yet has this, like, megaphone that needs to be kind of uh, acquiesced to in some ways? And how does that undermine um, kind of other forms of authority within the far right? Um, I would say a lot. Um, yeah, for sure. I think this is one of the things that as well that is unevenly or uncertainly synthesized in the new organizational forms. This kind of tension between people who are the leader in very, you know, a formal way or a technical way and people who have the loudest megaphone. It's not always the same group of people and the possibility of kind of producing rifts between them is quite an important part of anti-fascist strategy, I think. I mean, and what we've also seen is that oftentimes the far-right leadership becomes influencers, um, which is good and bad. Like, they spend a lot of time producing content rather than doing organising in many ways. They also make themselves particularly vulnerable, especially if a lot of their kind of influence comes from their con the content they produce. And so the classic case we talk about him in the book, uh, we have a whole section on him, is, uh, is Tommy Robinson, who, you know, is still around... He's got his own website, he posts to Telegram, but he's not the figure he once was. And uh, we saw that in the, the statue defender protests where he was very much a kind of marginal, almost a marginal figure. Although he, he's kind of hit Robinson as like a meme, as like a totem for like the kind of drunken street defender, statue defender rabble. They still chanted his name, but he was still in absence. He was a, a kind of a ghostly presence. Um, once Robinson lost his access to his like a million likes Facebook page or his, you know, hundred of thousand subscribed, hundred of thousand subscribers on his YouTube channel, once those went away, a lot of his influence went away too, and he's become a much weakened figure. And so there's, this is not this is not to say that there, there are opportunities for antifascists in here. It's not just that because because someone producing content on the internet doesn't mean that they're not vulnerable. In many ways, it makes them more vulnerable. Um, it's just that we need to start changing our tactics, changing the way we find information out, changing the things we do in order to uh, in order to you know counter this new uh, phenomena. All right, so there's a few things that we've done in the meantime. So we haven't been producing episodes, um, largely because we've been writing. Um, yeah, apologies for that. Genuinely apologies for that because. Yeah, um, some people have stuck on the Patreon $5 tier. Massive thank you to you. You will get a free copy of the book. Uh, you will get a free copy of the book, yeah. Yeah, we have given you no content, uh, but you will get a copy of the book. Um, and we've got, we had a few things, there's a couple of articles on Freedom that we, we published. There's a review of David Renton's new book, Fascism, um, which went up on Raw magazine that I did. And then there's one by me on The Ecologist. Wait, has that gone up now? No. Still no. But uh, we're, we're uh, you know, uh, the night is young. <laughs> okay. Tentahooks. Um, we've still got another book to write. So we're not going to be on it with the episodes, but we will be producing a few more episodes between now and the end of the year. So look out for them on our Twitter and on our uh, other... Uh, that's well, We're already on Twitter. Um, and... Enjoy the rest of the book fair, um, and bye. Yep, see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you very much. Bye. As mentioned at the beginning, uh, we are part of the Channel Zero network, so here is one of their podcasts. Anarchism, a social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. Anarchism is not bombs, disorder, or chaos. It is not robbery or murder. It is not a war of each against all. Anarchism is the very opposite of all that. Find out for yourself. Tune into Subversion 1312. Podcasts and related content available at subversion1312.org and channelzeronetwork.com. Conclusion? We stand for anarchy, anti-capitalism, anti-racism, 
anti-authoritarianism, internationalism, autonomy, direct democracy, ecology, self-organisation, solidarity, anti-fascism, anti-neoliberalism, anti-nationalism, atheism, equality and freedom. 12 rules.